In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There's one sound that no relay runner ever wants to hear. Ping, 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 as the baton hits the track. In the 2008 Olympics, both the men's and women's 4x100 relay teams heard that fateful ping. And four years before that in Athens, the men's relay team heard it as well leading to an upset as the British team pulled an unlikely um, upset of the favored United States men's team. The United States women's team in Athens actually were just disqualified altogether for a botched handoff. There's been similar troubles in world championships and for runners down through the ages in relay races. And on the surface, it seems rather easy, doesn't it? It's only about a foot-long stick, it's unadorned, it's cylindrical in nature, and it should be relatively light and easy to hold on to. And it goes by a really simple nickname, the stick. Yet every runner fears that sound that can make years of training come tumbling to an end as it hits the track. One sprinter compared this handoff to that of trying to reach a loved one through a full crowd in an airport while you're rushing to the gate trying to grab their hand as there are a few strides in front of you. It's just a hurried sort of a feeling. And yet for all of the talents of these runners, it all comes down to one moment and one handoff. You can't win on raw talent alone. There is something that must be passed on. In many ways, the stick could be likened to our faith. Each of us is called to run the race, our leg of the race, with perseverance, but it is not enough just for us to run well. We must hand it off, we must pass it off, certainly to generations behind us, but also to those with whom we run the race that is set before us. Paul uses all these images, as you can recall and recount, in many of his pastoral epistles to the church. But there's one passage today, our first lesson actually, from Joshua, that pulls this before us as this theme for today, perhaps, of legacy leaving in Lent is one for us to reflect upon, and not just at the end of our life, but one that we should be focused on as we run the race before us, certainly thinking of those who come after us, but also those around us as we persevere throughout the course of this life. So let's turn back to Joshua together for just a moment. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screens where I believe we find three Lenten lessons and legacy leaving this morning. So to gather a bit of context, we know, of course, that Joshua himself is one to whom the baton has been passed. He was mentored, he led alongside Moses, and ultimately he's the one that takes the leadership that leads the people of Israel into the promised land. Sermon for another day, this is the moment when an entire generation who chose not to trust in God is left in the desert, and the next generation with Joshua is able to enter the promised land for the first time. And as they do so, as this generation enters the promised land, 
God parts the Jordan River just like he parted the Red Sea for them to pass through to cross over to the other side. And as they do so, they're given the instruction, as we read, that they should gather 12 stones, one for each uh, representative of each of the tribes of Israel. And there, as they encamp on the other side, they are to set up a monument for all to see. And as we continue on in verse 21 and following, we discover that it has a purpose. That monument that would be set up would be there to tell a story. So that when someone tugged at the robe of their granddad or their mother and says, what is this about? It would lead them to recount the story first of God's deliverance from Egypt and then the moment at which their feet touched the promised land in which they now reside. Those moments, those monuments recalled, those stories would then lead each generation, Lord willing, to both embrace and fear or respect the Lord for the ways that he has worked, even if they themselves had not seen that mighty and outstretched arm in their own day. Now let's pause there for just a moment. There's so many images, even in those opening verses, but one in particular that I'd like for us to pull forward to reflect on for us as a first Lenten legacy leaving moment is this, and it's that this provides orientation for us in life. Lent itself, for us, is a monument. It's a, it's a season that calls us to reflect on the salvific work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, to square our lives up against where we stand in relation to that, to repent, to return, to reorient as well. Worship is a weekly monument. It calls us back from all the distractions, all the rumblings, all the rumors, all the frustrations of this life to what matters most. In this tradition, at least, um, the church itself is set up with monuments. The bob baptismal font in the back reminds you of where the Christian life begins. As you walk in past it, you can tangibly stick your hands in the waters of baptism to be reminded of that. And as you walk in, the cross stands before you as a reminder of the only way we have access to God. And you'll always gaze upon this massive altar, which reminds us of the end of the Christian life, whereby we'll rejoin with Jesus around the banquet table once more as Revelation leaves us. We have monuments in life. We have moments that we're called to reflect on. So this morning, let me ask you, what are your personal monuments that you can look, think about of what God has done for you? Maybe it's a moment where you were delivered from some sin or snare. Perhaps it's a moment of triumph at a time when there seemed to be no path and God made a way for you. Perhaps it's a moment of reconciliation when you thought a relationship was long since gone, and yet God did a mighty work. What moments, what monuments can you recall? Part of handing off the baton of the faith to those around us and after us is to know those stories because they keep us oriented, but they help others be oriented to what matters most at, in life. And different moments in your life will likely connect with different people in your life in different ways. For instance, sharing a struggle of temptation may not be as appropriate to a child or grandchild or school kid as talking about how you found identity when they struggle with fitting in with peers. Um, 
talking to a coworker um, about reconciliation with a family member, unless they're wrestling with that, may not be as appropriate as realizing that there's something higher to strive for than the rat race that we stick ourselves in and exhaust ourselves in toward gains that we may or may never fully see. Such moments, such monuments keep us oriented. They help us stay focused on where we've been in the face of the uncertainty of where we're headed, knowing that we have hope in the midst of it. So if I could, as we cross over the halfway mark in Lent this morning, if I could give you a task, some homework in the remaining weeks. If you've never journaled or captured such moments, such monuments in your life, do that. Find a way to take note of them, and then find a way to articulate them. Practice on each other. Friends in the church, it's friendly fire, right? Or family members, you can do this. Because it helps you find a way to be able to articulate that to others. We did this yesterday in our evangelism workshop, and it comes really quickly and easily, right? There was a time in my life when I had despair. Um, I was just stuck in the rut of life. Um, and there was Jesus, and as I, I came to him and I followed him, I found hope and purpose on the other side of it. What is that, 15 seconds? That's a testimony, right? And then, hey, have you ever experienced such things? Well, no, I don't re really wrestle with hope or despair, but, you know, I really do kind of wrestle with just anxiety all the time. Okay, well, great, let's talk about that. You know, there's always a way for a door to be had, not just when we're on our deathbed trying to hand off something to those nearest us, but at every moment in life, we hand the baton off to those around us. Those moments help us stay oriented as well. Because heaven knows there's uncertainties in life, as we well know, now more than ever. And certainly, as stood in the face of the Israelites back in the first verse of chapter 5, if we turn there together for a second lesson. Notice how, as we flip into this new chapter, we get a little bit of an orientation of what's going on. The Lord continues to be faithful to his promise. He doesn't just part the Red Seas and the Jordan River. They enter the promised land and are basically told, figure it out yourselves now, people of Israel. God's continued to go before them. And we have the benefit of seeing at this point what they themselves cannot see. As we see, they cross over the Jordan River as God removes this iniquity from them, as we've seen the iniquity from not trusting in him in Egypt, which left an entire generation there in the sands and the um, plains of that region. Now this new wave of Israelites enters into the promised land, and this is no small feat. They encamp in the shadow of Jericho. That's a big deal. These are the people that led an entire generation to say, nope, Nope, we are not going in. They are too big, they are too strong, their cities are too fortified, and here's that generation in the shadow of Jericho encamping for the first time. And little do they know, God's already gone before. We have that benefit. The kings, the mighty kings, the mighty rulers, these mighty cities, these towering people we see have their hearts melt within them. They have, as we read, no spirit within them. That word spirit translated in English is the same word that means life and breath that we see when God breathes life into man for the first time. They have no life in them to stand against what God is doing. People of Israel don't know that. They obediently walk in to where God's called them to be. 
They follow him. They remain committed to God, recalling all that he has done. And as they do so, their God has already gone before. So many themes once more. One in particular to pull forward, which is just simply this, in a second lesson and legacy leaving in Lent, that not only do we need such orientation in life, but we also need to recall that God produces a path. We know that intellectually. Yeah, we know God makes a way. Um, we could point to, you know, 20 different Bible verses that may tell us that. But it's a different thing altogether to know it and then let the penny drop and actually live it in reality. That's hard. That requires commitment. It requires obedience. It requires walking through what God has called us to as well. The list of promises we have in Scripture we often fail to see are us just embracing what God's already done, catching up to what he's already promised he's going to do. Think about it. Every week in the Lord's Prayer, forgive as you have been forgiven. God's already done it. Um, give as I have given unto you. Um, the list goes on and on. Go and baptize and I'll be with you to the end of the ages. I mean, he's already there. He's already gone before. The promises are there. We just have to walk in them and remain committed to them. We have to put faith into practice to remind ourselves of where we've been, the moments when we've experienced what God has done, to stay oriented, but then also to be obedient. Because the end of our journey is not one of just preserving the faith. It's persevering in the faith so that we have something modeled in the struggles of obedience and the waywardness at times, but coming back that show others that it's not just something we ascribe to intellectually, but something we actually walk out. And that requires investment. That requires obedience. And that requires commitment. So what might that look like for us? How will we go out and do the work of evangelism? Will we show up and partner with God in what he's doing? What do we need to move out of our way to make effort to put discipleship more intentionally in the center of our lives. As we do these things, as we commit and recommit ourselves to the Lord, we discover the promise is already there. We're just, in a sense, coming into alignment with what God has already done. And as we do so, then we discover what's so obvious, which is where our reading leaves off at the end of this passage, if you turn there with me in verse 10. It's a comfort for us to be reminded that unbeknownst to the people as the kings and people's hearts before them melt as they encamp in the shadow of Jericho and the plains thereof, um, we see what do they do. They don't sit in fear and fret and worry and wonder if God's going to show up. They worship. The first act when they get into the promised land is worship. And not just any worship, but they celebrate the Passover. I mean, that's pretty rich. The first thing they do is celebrate where they were, recalling what God did to get them to that point. And then no sooner do they finish the Passover do they discover that the manna ceases. And that very day, Scripture tells us, they eat of the fruit of the land for the first time. Should we be surprised? God's timing and provision are perfect every single time every single time. And yet, at times we need reminding of that. 
God's timing and provision are indeed perfect, and those are part of the story that we must tell. But if we could be honest, though, there's a little um, challenge here. While we know that that's a comfort, that God's timing and provision are perfect, if we're honest, we know that usually God's timing and provision in the future will look different than it did in the past. And that is difficult, because none of us like this word, change. Nobody likes the word change. Why? Because it raises within us a level of anxiety and uncertainty. And we really don't have a problem with change so much as we have a problem with loss. Change produces loss, or at least perceived loss, right? And so we have to get to the place where we recognize that that's what's going on in some way. Now, this is what it may look like. I, I'm taking a little bit of liberty here with the text, if I may. But for instance, the manna ceases and they eat of the fruit of the land. We go, well, that must have been a pretty awesome moment. But it's a loss. No longer can they walk out every morning and food is on the ground before them. Now they must till the ground, albeit for better food, um, and work the land and discover the provision God's provided in that season, which looks different than the provision he provided in the season before. The point is this. There was a loss, albeit a better gain. And I'd argue that most of the loss we experience for the provision and timing God has for us in the next season is arguably better than where it was before. But we sometimes have to get over that C word that brings with it loss to embrace the promises of God and the provision in the season ahead. And that's not often easy. There'll be times when you'll have new leaders. There'll be times when you'll have new ministries. There'll be times when things will change, right? And that produces loss. And we can either grip onto that and try to preserve it at all costs, or we can let go and embrace what God wants to do. We have to be in that readiness all the time because that is how God works. That's how we have new moments and monuments that we can point to time and time and time again. So what do you, what do we as a church hold on to? What patterns, what programs, what groups might we need to pivot? What needs added? What needs new birth but can't happen if we don't let go of something else? I, I'm not posing solutions, but these are things that we must always wrestle with in every day and age. Because passing the baton of the faith calls us to remain oriented all the time on where we've been, which reminds us and those around us of God's faithfulness. It keeps us oriented on the path before us as it calls us to obedience to continue on and persevere. And then as we do that, we meet our Lord along the way. And we meet him along the way to discover as we walk in faithfulness to him that he will always, in his perfect timing and provision, give us exactly what we need at exactly the right time for exactly that season that we may not even know yet. So, my friends, Linton legacy leaving, something we're called to reflect upon because it begins in us before we ever see the fruit of it outside of us. So in this season of Lent, may we take inventory, may we be drawn back to such a model May we recommit ourselves, and may we not hear a ping, ping, ping as we fumble to pass the baton off to those around us and those around us and after us, so that they indeed may run the leg of the race that they are called to do so with faithfulness and endurance because of the model that we have set.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.